Good morning, church. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Galatians, excuse me, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, a little bit of a difference between Galatians and Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 this morning. As you're turning to Genesis 2, choir, thank you for so beautifully leading us this morning. And Linda, thank you for your leadership. And Brent and our orchestra led us so beautifully uh, with Dan and his leadership and John and his leadership. We are blessed here at Dawson by the musical gifts of our congregation that lead us so faithfully week in and week out. I heard a story of a kindergarten teacher that in some respects stands as a parable in our culture. The story is of a kindergarten teacher passing out to her children one day magic markers and construction paper, and their task and assignment for that day was to draw what they wanted to be when they grew up. So the boys were quick to the task and were drawing drawing firemen and fire trucks and they were drawing baseball bats and footballs. Some wanted to be baseball players, football players. The girls hurried themselves drawing the image of their teacher. Many of them as kindergarten uh, uh, students were enamored with their teacher and wanted to be just like her. One little girl who didn't draw princesses, didn't draw her teacher was just sort of paralyzed by the, by the weight of the assignment. She couldn't compute from her mind to the paper exactly what she was seeing. And so the teacher, seeing that she had a little bit of, of uh, paralysis, came by her and said, Sweetie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, When I grow up, I want to be married, but I just don't know how to draw that. The teacher, encouraging her, to, to be broken of the paralysis of, of not being able to know how to draw it. She leans down and she says, Sweetie, you can draw that just however you would like. Is marriage open to our whims? Is marriage defined just solely by your creative expression? It, can it be drawn in any way that you would like to draw it? Oh, we get it. We, we certainly get the sentiment of a teacher trying to encourage her pupil to a, a sense of artistic expression. Certainly, we understand that. I remember when I was seven, eight years old, the, the dates sort of elude me, but I would go to our elementary school library. The librarian would have this uh, group of books of how to draw, and I always wanted to get one book that I, as an eight-year-old, could draw the characters, the cartoon characters. I, I wanted to draw some Transformer characters, Optimus Prime, and I could draw him from that book. There were G.I. Joe characters, Flint and Duke, and I, as an eight-year-old, second grader, I, I wanted to draw them, and I would open up the book, and I would turn to the chapter, and it would show me how to draw the head. Then it would show me how to draw the body. Then it would draw, show me how to draw all the accessories on these cartoon characters. But I never would go through those steps. You know what I would do? I would go to a really bright light. I would shine it down upon the template of that finished, completed rendering. And I would get a sheet of paper and I would put it over it and I would trace it. You see, there was a completed template. And if I had enough light and I put my paper up against that template, I, I could draw these cartoon characters as best I could because I could trace the finished design of the creator. 
Is there a template for marriage? Is there a creator who has designed what marriage is intended to look like? And are we called as a society to throw out the template or to trace the template? It seems to me that that is the question that not only families are asking, not only individuals are asking, not only is our culture asking within media and within the arts, but frankly, it is the question that each church and each denomination will have to not only ask, but clearly answer. Is there a template? And I'm here to tell you without any shadow of a doubt that God's word is a template for us and the light of God's word shines brightly on that original design of marriage that we read of in Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 18. Read with me God's design of marriage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heavens, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, Summarizing all of this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Chapter 2 comes to us, and there is a little bit of of theological groundwork that we need to do. There's a temptation to think of chapter 2 as a contradictory account of creation. I want you to understand very clearly that chapter 2 is not a contradiction to what has come in chapter 1, but rather it's a complementary telling of the creation story with a uh, distinct emphasis. If chapter 1 gives us the panoramic viewpoint, chapter 2 summarizes in chapter 2 verse 4 the first five days with just one verse. And then it gives us the close-up shot emphasizing the creation of Adam, the purpose of Adam, the Garden of Eden, and then ultimately God's design for an Eve. They're not contradictory. They are complementary. They're not contradictory. Both of these accounts emphasize that God alone is the source of creation. Both of these accounts emphasize that God has created humanity for a purpose. A purpose for them to be able to celebrate His image as they are image bearers, given responsibility in the Garden of Eden that we too, even after the fall, bear responsibility for. These are not contradictory accounts, but rather complementary accounts. We notice here in Genesis chapter 2 that God speaks very clearly to us in verse 18 where he says that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam is there in the Garden of Eden. He's all by himself. He's given two commands. One is an exhortation. One is a prohibition. The first exhortation is to work, to tend the garden. Adam is given a responsibility to work. It's important for us. 
There can be all kinds of Monday morning jokes that all of us feel outside of the Garden of Eden. But it is important to understand that work is a gift pre-fall. That we flourish with responsibility. That, that our heavenly destination is not one of eternal rest and relaxation. Playing harps, laying back on a cloud like, like a, a cream cheese commercial. That is not our destination as humans, we, we will have responsibility even in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Garden of Eden was a place where Adam had responsibility. He, he had work to be done because we are created for that purpose. There is an exhortation to work. There is a prohibition. Adam, you can eat from any of the trees here, but this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from that. Why? Because you will die. There's physical death, but there's spiritual death. God uh, oftentimes gets blamed for uh, being so narrow-minded in the garden, but, but understand very clearly that he says, all of this is yours. This one place, this is off limits. So it is an abundance that God blesses Adam with. But notice in the midst of God giving Adam this exhortation and this prohibition that he comes to this place where he says, it is not good. That should be a place that we pause because the refrain of Genesis chapter 1 was, there was evening, there was, uh, there was morning, there was evening, day 1, there was morning, there was evening, day 2, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It was very good on the sixth day. When he creates man and woman in the image, then we come to the image of God. Then we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and it's the first time we read, it is not good for man to be alone. Why was it not good? Well, God has created us in his image, that relational image of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he has a design for Adam, which is a design for our culture. And I just want us to reflect upon marriage as God's design. Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. So notice the design of gender in verse 18. Notice that Eve is given the title of the helper. Notice the distinct role by God. It can be that we're easily offended in 2018 by God calling Eve the helper, especially within our culture. That word has been utilized in a lot of ways to talk about domestic responsibilities. It can be demeaning, and it has been used in demeaning ways. Well, we need to recapture the original word in the language of the Old Testament that is a word that is most often used to describe God's relationship to Israel. It's not a demeaning role. All throughout the Psalms, God is described as the helper to Israel. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Isaiah 41 10 says, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. The same word used here in Genesis chapter 2, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's a military connotation to this word that God is saying to Israel, I'm the Calvary's coming in. You can't do this by yourself, but an ally is coming in. So Eve is the Calvary. Eve is the ally. Adam can't do this alone. Not created as he's created the image of God to, to be alone. as a solitary individual by himself in the Garden of Eden. So God gives us the blessing of the gender of a female for these relationships as he has created us in his 
image. Now, there's another way we can think about the equality of the female gender by the creation of it in Genesis chapter 2. He creates Eve out of Adam's ribs, talking about intimacy, certainly, but also equality. There's a famous quote from Matthew Henry that I really do think goes back to Thomas Aquinas, but I wasn't able to pin it down this week. But he, he asked the question, why the rib? Why the rib? Eve is not made out of the head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved. There is equality in the genders. There is dignity, but certainly there is difference. So marriage is God's design. There's the design of gender, but there's also in this passage the design of intimacy. Notice again in your copy of God's Word, verse 24, which is a summary statement. Every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you always ask the question, what is it therefore? It's summarizing in Genesis chapter 2 what has come before and giving us a passage of Scripture that is going to be a thread that is utilized throughout all of the New Testament and beyond, or not beyond, but throughout the New Testament to summarize the unique relationship between Adam and Eve, but also husband and wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are three essential components to God's design for intimacy, God's design for marriage, and the first component that we discover in verse 24 is leaving. Notice the first thing that the writer of Genesis says, a man will leave his father and mother. This is not about proximity, but it's about perspective. It's not about the distance that you should uh, live between you and your in-laws. That's not the point of this passage. E- even in the ancient Near Eastern world, when a husband and a wife got married, most often that husband would, would bring his wife back to his father and mother's home, and they would be this kind of compound that they would live together in. So in the world of Genesis and beyond, This call to leave isn't about get as many miles between you and your family as you possibly can so you can sow your own roots. That's not what this passage is about as much as the perspective that we are called to have as husband and wife. Prior to saying I do, your primary identification is going to be one of your relationship to a father and to a mother. I am the son of. I am the daughter of. I was born in this place. Well, when you get married, there is a change of perspective. There's a change of allegiance. And that allegiance is is that your first identification primarily is that I am the husband of or I am the wife of. We wear rings to be able to symbolically testify that we have made a covenant for all the world to see. And so our primary identification is in those marital vows that we Make, leaving. I think it's important. You know this. Many of you here have been married for decades. And so you, through your life, could preach this sermon better than I with these words can. You understand this. You, you have the miles behind you to be able to give wisdom to those that have miles before them. That's one of the great gifts of Dawson is the intergenerational nature of this church. Right now, we have over 90 individuals 
that are in our Together for Life program. And we have decades of, of wonderful ministry here at Dawson coming alongside of couples that are going to be engaged or are engaged. And this is an important place because you know that when couples fail to leave and there's not a priority of their marital relationship, that that oftentimes leads to tremendous obstacles down the road in marriage. You know that. There's a, you know, really a phrase and description now that one of the first time in, in American history called helicopter parenting. And there's a temptation from my generation, even the generation coming behind me, to, to always be right beside your kids. And so when they're on the playground and you see them about to trip and fall, you're able to helicopter down on them and pick them up so, so they would never skin their knees, so that they're never disappointed in life. They're never bullied at school. And all those things are, are real things. And we certainly don't want to uh, send our kids into horrific situations. That is true. But even with that disclaimer, you know in this room that one of the best things that kids can experience is disappointment in life. They need it. They need to be able to bleed and know that there is going to be a scab and then that's going to heal. They need to lose. They need to have disappointment because life is going to bring them disappointments. And the earlier that they can understand that and build resiliency is a helpful thing. And if helicopter parents are pulling out the rug of disappointment and allowing resiliency to not be bred into children. That, that is horrific, not only for those individual kids, but it's horrific for our society. Horrific for our society. Now, for the first time, maybe even in human history, kids that get married and young adults that get married very well might have a standard of life that's lower than their parents. So when many of you in this room got married, the last thing that you were thinking was, I, I'm, going, I'm going to have mom and dad bail me out because they, they didn't have the money to bail you out. You had to fly in marriage. Well, now there's an ability for, for parents to helicopter their children when they get married and to be able to move and to pave all the obstacles out of the way and pave this way to marriage where they never have to feel any disappointment, where they can jump into the standard of living that it's taken decades to be able to, to have for their parents. And we understand that this can be very detrimental Four couples, can it? And you and I will celebrate 19 years as a couple. I proposed at 19. I was 20. She was 21. We made a lot of stupid decisions that I'm very thankful for. Do you know, you know, choir, you know what I mean by that, don't you? I mean, you know what I mean by that. I don't mean sinful kind of decisions, but, but things that we learned and, and, and it built character in us. We, we were able to get our legs under us as a couple and, and we had to build that unity together. And, and these were healthy things for us. And so as you're giving counsel for some of you that are in this room, shoo those kids away. Don't let them go into horrific situations by any stretch of the imagination. But you know it was good for you and, and it will build resilience in them leaving but also weaving you leave father and mother but you unite to one another 
The weaving aspect of Genesis 2, 24 is one that's oftentimes neglected because the Bible doesn't explicitly say what does it mean to be united. We're going to come to the cleaving in just a second. But there's a sense in which every marriage is united by communication horizontally, time horizontally, and communication vertically, and, communica- and time vertically. A couple that prays together stays together. There's a sense in what united, unites us as couples is that commitment to commune with the one who is at the center of our relationship. That is Christ Jesus as we pray to him, as we spend time with him. So we grow in our spiritual relationship with God, which by default oftentimes allows us to grow closer to one another because there is a sure foundation. Romance will leave us. Everybody knows that. I mean, the honeymoon stage of a marriage is not one that will propel the marriage into the fifth decade and the sixth decade. There has to be something deeper, a union that is built with Christ as our foundation. But there is a, there is a horizontal aspect to that where we prioritize communication with one another as a couple. We prioritize time with one another as a couple. That looks different in every situation, but we all know that a marriage has to be tended lest the weeds grow. And weeds will grow up in in any untended marriage, and it will begin to choke the life out of those marital vows. There is leaving, there is cleaving, just said that there was united. So let's think about cleaving, cleaving for a second. Notice in this passage right here that the Bible says they will become one flesh. That God's template for marriage has implicit in it the, the, the design of human sexuality. That God has created genders in this complementary way for sexual pleasure but also for reproduction is a very important point for us to consider in our culture here. Genesis 1 The first command that we hear really to Adam and Eve together is be fruitful and multiply. The way that they're able to be fruitful and multiply is by them living under the template of male and female. That inherent to being able to fulfill that command is the distinctiveness of genders that we discover in that template. That sexuality is not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that that we shouldn't talk about in a healthy way, but rather it is God's good gift given to couples in marital vows, marital covenants. Now, Satan has an all-out battle for all marriages, and he oftentimes challenges couples around leaving, around weaving, and around cleaving. Satan is completely unoriginal. He, he is a parasite that has to hook onto God's good gift and pollute it and pervert it. And in our culture, the perversions of God's template have been normalized and become so familiar to us that, that we're losing, as a Christian church, our voice and to be able to say, no, we love these people. But that activity is outside of the boundaries that God has designed in his original template. So all of us in this room prayerfully will be able to say that the pornographic industry that is billions of dollars in profitability every year, this is outside God's template of human flourishing. 
We should be able to be unified and to be able to say that, that sexual relationships outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman, that is outside God's design, that is outside his template, that adultery is outside God's design for human flourishing, that same-sex marriage is outside God's design for human flourishing. It is not my opinion, but rather the template that has been given to us, we either ignore the template or we trace the template. We either ignore it or we trace it. Now, as we come to the end here, I think it's important for us to understand that marriage is God's design, but there's a sense in which marriage is also a portrait of the gospel. Let's just look very briefly at the conclusion of our message here. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and what does he do? He quotes the very verse that we've just given attention to. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 31, a man shall do what? Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He grounds a portrait of the gospel in this template from Genesis 2. Then he says, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of our earthly marriages are a foreshadowing of our eternal marriage while Christ is married to his church. So all of us that get married, and not all of us in this room will be called to marriage. Not everybody has to be married by any stretch of the imagination to experience human flourishing. But in the call of marriage, I think it's important for us to always understand no matter how pretty the dresses are no matter how handsome you look in the suit or the tuxes they are fig leaves that cover over the fact that these are two sinners saying I do that all of us bring into our marriage our past and our baggage and I've said it before and I'll say it many times you cannot at the wedding altar check to the final destination the baggage you've got to carry it on Every marriage brings on that baggage. And so oftentimes, one of the confusions in marriages is that people are looking for their spouse to do something that only our Savior can do. All of you in this room that have decades behind you, you know this very well, that your husband is not called to be your Savior, nor is a wife called to be a Savior. Only Jesus Christ can fulfill the requirements to be the Savior that we need. And oftentimes, one of the hindrances in true flourishing in our marriages is that we're expecting our husband or our wife to do something and to be something that they are not called to be. We're always sinners. And our human marriages, understand exactly what I'm saying here, our human marriages are all temporary. They are not eternal. They are a foreshadowing of our heavenly reality when I get to heaven and when you get to heaven and we're in the new heavens and earth and we get to spend an eternity together, you're going to be walking the streets paved, as John says, in the symbolic language of gold. You're going to be looking around that symbolic languages of the mansions. And you know what you're not going to find in heaven? You're not going to find a house that says, Welcome to David and Danielle Eldridge's home. 
Our marriages, as beautiful as they are, they are temporary and they foreshadow the eternal relationship that we will have as all of us, as children of His, will be united to Him and our earthly marriages are but a foreshadowing and temporary placeholder for what will be our eternal reality. John's coming to the end of his words, the end of his vision. What's called the revelation. He peels back where we're headed and he gives us a portrait of a wedding ceremony. This is what he says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Our marriages are imperfect. Every husband in this room is imperfect. Every wife in this room is imperfect. The relationships that are this side of heaven are an imperfect foreshadowing of what will be the perfect realization of union with our groom, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. John comes to the end and he says, these words are true. And the question that each culture has had to be clear in, and the question that our culture will have to be clear on, The question that our church will have to be clear on, every family will have to be clear on, every teenager, every parent, every person is, do I believe these words or do I not? Is there a template or is marriage just a rendering of whatever I would like it to be? Does it look like he says it's supposed to look like or does it look like what I want it to look like. Does his word win or does my opinion win? These words are true. Do you believe them? Do you trust them? And do you long for them to be true in your life and in your eternity? Let us pray. Paul's to say that the script that you have given us is a script that is inspired by you in a culture in which there is tremendous confusion. May we pause to consider the template that you have given to us, the portrait of the gospel that is before us in eternity, that is foreshadowed in any earthly vow that is taken. May we, your people, be a people that are committed to the template that you have designed. May we understand that all of us are unrighteous. All of us in this room have fallen short in our sexuality. All of us have fallen short in every aspect of the design that you have instilled upon us. So we do not stand. 
with this sense of moral superiority, we stand as sinners in need of your grace. So we thank you that you are one who clothe us in your righteousness, who desire to cling to us even in our sinfulness and unfaithfulness. Thank you that you are a covenant keeper. May every person in this room clearly understand the love that you have for your bride, the church. And may we in this room say yes to the free gift of the gospel, to be a part of that community of faith that will be united to you for an eternity. It's in your name we pray, the powerful name of Christ Jesus. Amen.